Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to True Restoration. Here is your host. Welcome to the Restoration Radio Network's uh, introductory show to uh, a new program that we'll be putting out for Season 3, The Spiritual Life. I'm your host, Nicholas Wansbutter, and I have the great privilege to be spending time this evening and throughout the series with our instructor for The Spiritual Life, Father Bernard Utley, OSB, a Benedictine priest who uh, also happens to be uh, my pastor at uh, Our Lady of Victory Church in London, Ontario, Canada. So uh, thank you, Father, for joining us tonight, and welcome to Restoration Radio. It's a great honor to have you with us. Well, thank you very much. Good evening, Nicholas. Good to be here. Thank you. And um, we encourage our listeners to visit truerestoration.org, which has articles, books, and videos available for purchase and direct download. And while a portion of the operating costs for this radio network are underwritten by True Restoration, our shows are truly listener-supported. We have annual radio subscriptions for the subscriber of every level, available by clicking the Donate button at truerestoration.org. Restoration radio programs, including this one, are available on blogtalkradio.com forward slash restorationradio and are syndicated on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, You can follow the work of True Restoration on all social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Flickr, LinkedIn, and Pinterest by following us using the social buttons on truerestoration.org. So uh, uh, without further ado, let's uh, get to our show. I should mention uh, to listeners that the Spiritual Life will be aired every third Sunday, starting on the 19th of January, 2014. And we look to be doing it at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Central, uh, each month that we're on. And uh, this show, we wanted to introduce our guest and introduce the topic that we'll be discussing. So uh, perhaps we could start, Father, with you telling us a little bit about yourself, a bit about your background, and I know we've discussed in the past and we're talking a little bit in the pre-show about uh, the fact that you, like uh, the other uh, people on Restoration Radio, are uh, a convert, but um, as we've also discussed, your conversion story is a bit different Mm -hmm. than ours. I think Stephen, Justin, and I, all three of us, did the uh, Novus Ordo to Indult to Society of St. Pius X contism over a period of years, but uh, y- your story uh, was a little bit different. Yeah, a little bit more direct, yeah. Um, yeah, let me begin just uh, saying that uh, I was um, born and raised in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada in 1979, and uh, most of my father's side of the family uh, was more or less traditional Catholic, but my mother's side was Nova Sordo, and my parents, uh, unfortunately, they separated when I was in the fifth grade, and after that, I lived with my mother. So I was raised in the Novus Ordo, the conciliar church, and, um, you know, she took me to church every Sunday. Uh, I was bored to death there, but uh, I did go every Sunday, and uh, I also went to Novus Ordo schools all my life, uh, both grade school and high school. Um, I'd have to say that, you know, being ra- I was not really taught the Catholic faith at home. You know, maybe a little, 
but not much at all, really. And definitely not taught the Catholic faith uh, in those um, so-called Catholic schools. It, it simply wasn't there. Uh, perhaps a, a watered-down, vague, lovey-dovey Christianity, but not real Catholicism. I didn't know it at all. So, And especially, th- this hit me when I was in high school. Um, yeah, in my religion class at high school, for example, my, uh, St. Mary's High School, I was supposed to be a Catholic high school, and we had in the uh, 10th or 11th grade, I don't remember which year exactly, but we had a world religions class. I guess this is a common thing. But uh, I remember the teacher telling us at the beginning of the year that since we all know enough about the Catholic faith, we're going to learn about other religions. And first of all, that's not true. We didn't know anything about our faith. We never taught anything. And it's just amazing that someone uh, could say that to us. Uh, They're supposed to be teaching us the faith, and they, they give us nothing, and that we already knew the faith well enough. And I have to say that I've been studying the faith now for almost 20 years. And I feel that I've only begun. You know, the faith is so rich and so deep. And I, I'm sure you realize this, that you could study it for hundreds of years and not come to the end of it. And yet it's all contained in essence in the simple catechism. And uh, that really shows the, 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 the depth of our faith. But in that class, I remember we learned more about other religions than about our own. And, and the, the way they presented uh, Buddhism and Hinduism or even Islam made those religions seem much more deep, more serious than Christianity. I remember uh, just being kind of grossed out by their presentation of Christianity. You just had pictures of flowers and maybe a baby chick, you know, just hatched, and, and all this represented new life or the, the resurrection or something like that. And, uh, but nothing of real substance. It was, it was really a joke. And, and looking back on those days, I can... It's no wonder that uh, the modern church is in the state it's in. It, it doesn't teach the kids anything about the faith. And, uh, you know, I remember in, in high school, in this Nova Soto high school, and, uh, you know, we had masses for the student body uh, a few times during the year. The attendance was mandatory. Uh, and at uh, some of these masses, we even had liturgical dancers. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but... Uh, you know, we have high school girls in leotards waving ribbons and as they high kick down down the center aisle, and it's it's crazy. But I remember well, seeing I, I didn't know a lot. I knew that that was crazy. Yeah, well, well, I, I've seen liturgical dancers on YouTube, but fortunately yeah. I was spared that at the all-boys uh, high school that I went to. Yeah, we had a co-ed, and it was uh, not, a, not a good thing. I even remember some of these uh, masses that we had... Uh, a female, one of the female students, she was the co-president that year of the student council, co-president, and she was sitting in the priest chair, and she was reading the closing prayer, and it, it's just insane. But anyways, it was around this time, I was about 16, uh, that I became a traditional Catholic, and, and the way that came about was I was visiting uh, one of my brothers who was a traditional Catholic, and uh, my uncle, from my dad's side, he who was also a traditional Catholic, he came for a visit and asked me if I wanted to come to Mass with them uh, uh, that Sunday at the traditional Catholic chapel in London, Ontario. And it was about an hour away, um, called Our Lady of Victory Church, the one that uh, you attended and I'm the pastor of right now. But I, I knew my mom probably wouldn't want me to go, and she didn't want me to get involved with traditional Catholics. Um, to her, they seemed somewhat fanatical or argumentative and you know, and unfortunately, um, in any resistant 
resistance movement, you're going to find some fringe elements. I'm sure there's there's a, there's a good number of people that are argumentative and fanatical, but it, but that's unfortunate that it paints the whole the whole movement. But uh, like I said, uh, I knew that my mom probably would not want me to go to the traditional mass, but I felt that at, at 16 that I, I should see the traditional mass, Latin mass for myself, you know, and um, you know, from talking with my dad and my brother and my uncle about the faith, I'd been learning more and more about the true faith. And so I felt that I had a right, you know, in conscience to settle this issue for my own sake, my own soul. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to be answer, uh, I'm going to answer to our Lord, uh, uh, individually. So, so I went, uh, to the traditional mass, uh, that weekend and really for the first time, uh, at least, uh, that I remember. I think I, I may have attended the Latin Mass once when I was really young, but I have vague memories of it. But uh, I have to say that attending that Mass, that one time, that first Mass, the first time as a thinking teenager, I was absolutely convinced that this was the true Mass. And it, it, must, it must have been a grace, but I, it hit me that this is the Mass of the saints. This is the Mass of all times. And I knew it. And, uh, you know, I have to say, I never looked back after that. I never willingly went to the Novus Ordo again. Um, I say willingly because at high school, sometimes you're forced to attend. Uh, but I only went and, you know, passively was present. But uh, if I could not get out of school that day, I did not participate. No, no. But that's for, right. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, Father, before you went to that Mass, did you, you said you'd had a few conversations with your brother and your father and your uncle. Had you started mm-hmm. studying the uh, the faith a bit more already at that point? Uh, did that start just after a you little bit. seen that now? Just just a little bit. I think I think they might have handed me a few books to read, and but mostly through conversation. Um, you know, they were fairly well versed in, in, in the faith, and um, I found it um, just uh, uh, can't think of the word, but absorbing. Just just uh, the faith was so attractive. Um, and there was a depth there that I was not getting anywhere else. So to hear about the truths of the faith, it really it did attract me. Um, mm-hmm. But but uh, but I remember that that first mass that I attended as a teenager, teenager it was uh, offered by Father Francisco Radecki of the CMRI. And after mass, uh, I know my dad uh, introduced me to Father and said, "This is you know my son, and it's the first time at mass." And and uh, Father Radecki, you know, he. He, uh, you know, heard my confession, which I believe to be my first real confession. He uh, gave me Holy Communion afterwards and also enrolled me in the Brown Scapular. So it was a beautiful day. And, and um, but I had to return home and I had to tell my mom where I went. And I did. And uh, she was upset. Uh, she was crying. Um, but I calmly explained to her that this was very important to me, that I felt that I had a right to go to the traditional mass, that you know, like I said, on Judgment Day, I will be judged on this and that I had to be a traditional Catholic. I just I just I just wanted to be Catholic. That's all. Mm-hmm. And eventually she relaxed and she promised me that I would be allowed to go. And in fact, that she would help me to go. So that was mm-hmm. a great blessing. Uh, so eventually and, and for herself too. eventually, after calmly explaining the faith without argument, I went over the reasons why I was traditional. And then she eventually started going to mass with me. So it's a matter of you know, to to not give that impression that uh, we're just we just argue and debate and fight. There is uh, we can calmly go over the issues, and um, she was convinced, and we began to say the rosary together and, and such things. But you know, after this, for the for the next three years, I began to seriously study the faith, 
especially to know what happened in the Catholic Church. And, uh, you know, there are certain books that influenced me. Hmm. So, uh, but what would you say were the the uh, top most influential mm-hmm. books that you read in your uh, uh, conversion journey, if we may call it that, Father? Yeah, uh, I remember uh, you and I were talking about this, that the books that helped you were not the books that helped me. They were different, that we were on different paths. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that the, the books that influenced me the most at this time was uh, the book by Father uh, Fathers uh, Radecki. Father Francisco Radecki and Father Dominic Radecki called uh, the book called What Has Happened to the Catholic Church. And I think it's an excellent book. It's um, just a great introduction to the subject. It's not too difficult or overwhelming, but it's a good introduction. Uh, that's the book I went over with my, my mother, and um, it was a good uh, good logical presentation. And another book that helped me was uh, Dr. Uh, Ram, Rama Kumar Swami's book on the New Mass, The Problems with the New Mass. That was... Uh, Short, but uh, pretty solid, I thought. Another one is uh, the famous um, book by Patrick Omler, uh, Questioning the Validity of the All-New English Canon. I thought that was uh, very solid, and and it convinced me. And all these books. And I also say that in addition to these books, uh, there was also a VHS tape at the church uh, of Father Sanborn at the time. And it was on the papacy. Uh, or rather, why we rejected uh, the Vatican II popes, and why this was an important issue to resolve, at least in our own minds. And this was an excellent tape. I wish I could get a copy of this again. It, it was a forceful talk, like all his talks, but it highly influenced me. And uh, um, and I think I also, now come to think of it, I, I also listened to his series of sermons. They were on cassette tape back then. Um, by Father Sanborn, now Bishop Sanborn, on the errors of Vatican II. And I think you can still get these sermons online with uh, traditionalcatholicsermons.org, and some of them are put out on uh, True Restoration as well. Uh, But I believe this is an excellent set. And it's just the evidence and the logic of these books and of that tape of Father Sanborn and his other talks really convinced me of the set of Vicontis' position. Uh, And... Subsequent study has, has only solidified my position. But even at 16, I, I think I have to say I was absolutely convinced uh, of Sedevacantism, uh, that these Vatican II claimants to the papal throne were, were not uh, true, that they were false, they were not true Catholic popes. And it seemed so obvious to me and so clear to me, and I was unaware really of uh, other traditional Catholic groups who did not accept this conclusion. I, I really did not know much about the society or any other groups. But to me, it seems so obvious, and I, I, I really, I've, I've never had any doubt in my mind um, hmm. on that position. Well, well that, that's, uh, if I may say, Father, that's quite impressive for a, a 16-year-old. I know I wasn't uh, yeah, <laughs> nearly to that level when I was 16. Yeah, but, it, um, it was a great. I mean, I mean, I, I wasn't like an intelligent kid in school or anything. Um, I, I never failed, but I just got by. But just something about the faith uh, clicked mm. in my mind uh, more than any other subject. So uh, how did we go from, from here, Father, to you discerning uh, your vocation to the monastic life? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it, it, took, it took about three years. Um, and it was a slow, you know, just continually reading about the faith and taking the faith more seriously. And I wanted to mention that uh, at school at this time, I 
you know, the more I learned about the true faith, uh, the more I wanted to get out of religion class at school. Uh, but I thought it was a threat uh, to me, and I just it was disgusting. And, and you know, I, I really wanted to drop out of that. So I, I went to the principal, um, and I asked if I could get out of religion class. And, he, and the principal said, well, we don't have uh, uh, part-time students here. And I said, well, I just can't take that class in conscience anymore. And he said, okay, well, if you drop out, you won't get a diploma. So I said, okay, whatever. Uh, I'll just get the Ontario general diploma. That's fine with me. Uh, but before I left that religion class, I, I, I gave my religion teacher, who's supposed to be a Catholic, I gave him Father Radecki's book about what, what's happened to the Catholic Church, and I think I gave him a copy of the Col Primum. Um, but obviously they meant nothing to him, and he, he returned them the next day to me, and he said to me this, this, this stunning question. I couldn't believe it. Uh, he said, he handed back the Col Primum, and he said, you really believe that Peter was the first Pope? And here was a, a Catholic, it's ridiculous. Here's a Catholic religion teacher denying the very foundation of the church. And I was speechless. And I remember saying, I, I didn't know what to say, except I said, you're not a Catholic. He goes, I'm not. I goes, you're not even a Christian. And I, I, I left. Uh, I walked out of the room. Um, but it was amazing that the level... He, even a Catholic teacher didn't get the faith at all, even the basics. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then also, it was important for me to do those uh, to do that. Uh, it just uh, to stand up for my faith at the time. And I don't like confrontation. I don't like argument. But it did uh, it did make my faith stronger. And I and I also at this time I, I remember I walked into the principal's office, and I handed him a copy of Pashendi and the Kulkrimam. And I realized that he probably just dropped it in the trash can as soon as I left the room. But it was important for me, like I said, just to, just to do that. It meant something to me. But, um, but I, well, you know, if I could uh, just interject quickly, Father, I, uh, sure. how did your um, how did your peers react to uh, you know to your uh, your really positions? And, yeah, they they really didn't know. I didn't talk too much. Uh, oh. Somewhat of a loner. I had friends. Uh, friends with everyone, but no close friends. Um, I, I didn't think that, um, you know, they were not really good Catholics, so I didn't feel uh, to open up to them at all. Uh, I went to school and then I went home. Uh, I, did, I studied at home. So, you know, really uh, my highlight of the week was um, going to Mass on Sunday. That was the highlight of my week. Uh, I just loved going to Mass and discussing the faith with fellow traditional Catholics especially family members, you know, uh, there's some, my uncle and, uh, uh, my brother and my dad, we would just talk about the faith and I, we would have meetings and we'd just get together, say the rosary and discuss the faith. Uh, so I loved, I just love studying the faith. And, uh, it, it just, it struck me as a teenager to be able to open up any Catholic book, uh, pre-Vatican II and just see just truth. It's just so clear and it, you could just drink it in. You know, it was just pure food, uh, and that just amazed me. I started to read even a little bit of philosophy and the Catholic apologetics, and uh, I read a lot about uh, a lot of books by uh, Gergul Lagrange, Father Gergul Lagrange. I owe so much to him. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that I knew or understood everything at the time, uh, but even the the 20% I understood, even if I just understood 20%, it was it was precious. And it, it helped me a lot. So, 
but you asked uh, how I became uh, religious, and I think what happened was, you know, I, I felt a vocation uh, starting in, in my heart, a calling. And after Mass one Sunday, I went to my priest, who was at the time Father Michael Anaya. And although he's not a CMRI religious, but he does work with the CMRI under uh, Bishop Mark Pedrunas. Um, so I went to Father Anaya and I said, Father, I'm thinking of, of that I have a religious vocation, a priestly vocation, and I'm, I'm thinking about the Benedictine Monastery in Alabama of Christ the King, or maybe Mater Dei Seminary in Omaha, but I, I think I'm more inclined towards uh, the monastery. So Father Anaya, uh, who, who would often visit the monastery, he would visit almost every year for a, a retreat. And he said to me, I know the abbot, I'll call him right now. And as a teenager, I was, my heart started pounding. I was, you know, I was a shy teenager, uh, very nervous in public speaking. I was definitely afraid to talk to the abbot. Uh, I've heard a lot of, you know, there's pious legends floating around about him. And I was a little intimidated to talk, to talk to him, but we, we talked and he was very nice and uh, he welcomed me down there. So it took us several months. Uh, but uh, in late uh, 1998, I left for the monastery and I stayed for 12 years. Hmm. Now, Father, um, uh, not all of our listeners uh, may necessarily know of Christ the King Abbey. Um, I, I don't think I'd actually heard of it until uh, I, I met you mm-hmm. for the first time, Father. So uh, maybe we could, if I, could I get you to talk a, uh, about the background of, uh, first of all, where is uh, Christ the King mm-hmm. Abbey and when was it founded? And... Okay. Yeah, um, yeah, I'll talk about uh, the monastery, but I want to talk also about Abbot Leonard Gerardina. Um, I'm amazed that uh, there's still traditional Catholics that haven't heard of it because uh, we had a, a mailing list of 25,000 um, oh, wow. and it got all over the country, but uh, there's still a lot of uh, groups, and a lot of people that did not hear of us. But, um, you know, Father Leonard, uh, he, Abbot Leonard, he became fairly well known in traditional Catholic circles. And I think uh, he was quite respected uh, since he was an older priest. And he was a wise man. Um, you know, uh, he would get calls all the time from all over the country for advice. And um, I think most people who met Father Leonard were was impressed with him and, and could not help but like him. You know, sometimes they might not agree with with him on certain things or criticize him for not taking a clear theological position. But he was a great man, and and he was he had his faults. And it's easy to look back and criticize them now. It's just like we were talking on Sunday, Nicholas, that you know, it's easy to, just like Archbishop Lefebvre, uh, it's easy to criticize him. Uh, but he did a lot of good as well. Uh, no one is perfect. But let me just start. Uh, I want to introduce uh, Father Leonard. Um, he was such a big part of my life. Uh, Father Leonard, he was um, born in 1922, and he became a Benedictine monk in 1942 uh, when, uh, when he entered uh, St. Bernard's Abbey in Coleman, Alabama. Um, his family's Sicilian, but, uh, so he's, he's, uh, pure Sicilian, but he was born in Alabama and he was ordained a priest in 1949. So it was a long time, uh, long before Vatican II. But, uh, soon after his ordination, uh, he was made assistant procurator or treasurer. And, uh, then, head procurator and the procurator, the business office, you know, you take care of all the, the temporalities and the, the bills and the, uh, the money basically. And, uh, eventually he also took charge. He was given charge of, uh, the large farm at the monastery. And it also had a large kitchen 
for the monastery and college that the monks ran. So he had all those jobs at once. And when Father Leonard entered the monastery, he told himself that the three jobs he would never want was in the business office, the farm, and the kitchen. And he got all of them. Uh, (laughs) So so God had uh, his... God got him on that one. But, uh, you know, this monastery... Uh, had about 120 monks at the time that he entered, about 50 or 60 priests. And the college that it ran uh, got up to 1,000 students. So it was a big operation. It was a big institution at the time. Not the biggest. There's other huge Benedictine monasteries, but it was, it, was, it was fairly big. So Father Leonard was a busy man and a, a very important man at St. Bernard's Abbey and its college. And he was but he was an administrator. He was more administ- as an administrator than a scholar. He didn't have uh, much time to, to read or study. And so he was a practical man. And he got things done. Uh, and being the procurator, he, he really saved the abbey and college from bankruptcy. Uh, they were going down and, and uh, he saved them. But it earned him uh, some enemies along the way since he had to say no to a lot of requests for spending. And that's that was the hard part. Um, one thing he did do was make a lot of friends uh, in the local city of Coleman, since he hired about 300 lay people to run the whole operation. In those days, the Benedictine monks really didn't do much manual labor, which is unfortunate. And, and that, was, that was why the, the monastery was going broke, because they had to pay 300 people when some of the monks could have done that work. Uh, the monks in those days tended to be just college professors uh, or parish priests. Uh, and they didn't do a lot of the, the work around the monastery that they should have done, really. Uh, but it was just the time period, just the time period. Uh, but in about 1970, a certain monk uh, became abbot. And this monk uh, and Father Leonard were almost, they were almost novices together, classmates almost. But for some reason, they, they never got along. Uh, all their life. And they, they were kind of, in a sense, rivals um, in a good sense, but uh, they never quite got along. Uh, well, when this monk became abbot, uh, Father Leonard thought, uh-oh, I'll probably be exiled to Siberia. You know, he'll, uh, he'll put me out on some parish way in Podunk, uh, Kentucky. And that was a common thing, you know. Uh, so that's what he thought. He figured, you know, I better just start packing. Uh, so because a lot of the, the priests Either you taught in the college or you were sent out on a mission. Uh, most of the Benedictines in those days did that. So they were not strictly speaking cloistered monks in a community. Unfortunately, I think they lost that contemplative side of their life getting involved with the college. But Father Leonard, uh, he was correct that he would be exiled, but he, he wasn't exiled far. He was made pastor of the Catholic Church in town uh, at Coleman. And it was a lot of Catholics at the time, but that was during the 70s. So for about six or eight years, he was pastor there. And he wasn't traditional at this point. I think he, he heard about Archbishop Lefebvre, uh, but simply dismissed him as a troublemaker. Um, however, uh, Father Leonard uh, was very conservative compared with other post-conservative two priests and pastors. And I think he was noticed for this and persecuted for this. You know, one of the examples he would give us is that he would still purify the chalice after Mass. When all the other priests stopped doing that, some of the priests at the time were, they would just leave uh, 
the chalice there on the altar and, and uh, the ciborium with particles of the hosts and, you know, the chalice had precious blood still in there. And it, the sacristan would just take those vessels and go back to the sacristy and wash them in soap and water in the sacristy. So he, he put a stop to that as much as he could. He said, no, we have to purify it, the, you know, the old way. Um, but he was noticed for that. And another thing that uh, he got in trouble for is that he would teach the children the Baltimore Catechism. And his abbot called him into the office and said, I hear you're teaching the Baltimore Catechism. I forbid you to do that. And Father Leonard's <laughs> like, okay, okay. And so he just left and continued teaching the Baltimore Catechism. <laughs> and then he called him in again. I thought I told you to stop teaching the Baltimore Catechism. You did. Uh, yep, okay. And so he left and kept teaching it because he didn't understand what was wrong with his catechism. Well, how come, you know, yeah. I grew up with this. I, we were taught it all the time. And, you know, what's wrong with this? So he didn't understand what was really happening in the church. Like people have lost their minds. Uh, I'm sure he went along with some things uh, because in those days, as he told us, if the bishop said it, it was okay. If the pope said it was okay, it was okay. You know, it, it was just obedience was such uh, was, obedience was the tool that the devil used to get into get these things in. Um, so it, it, to looking back, we would say, how come he would even say the new mass? Uh, but at the time, he he didn't think much of it. Um, but uh, finally, he was removed as pastor, and it, it came to a point that he asked for a leave of absence, uh, kind of a sabbatical, and he was granted one. And uh, as pastor, he had saved up stipend money and other donations, I think, and he bought a house in the country. So he moved there, uh, but not being supported by the monastery, he had to get a job. He, he actually yeah. got a job in the world for six or seven years. Uh, and what was kind of crazy, but it supported him is that he knew the owner of a, a really big Southern grocery store chain called Bruno's. Uh, he, and he knew the owner. He was a billionaire, Joe Bruno. And he asked him for a job. He said, Joe, you know, I, I need a job. And so Joe Bruno created a position of chaplain at one of his stores in Birmingham. And it sounds crazy, but, you know, for six or seven years, the abbot would drive, or Father Leonard at the time would drive to Birmingham, um, and he would be the chaplain. And, and so he attended to the Catholic employees, uh, but also counseled anyone would come to him for advice. Um, so that was his job, and, and he, he saved up his money. Um, so eventually, at this time, again, he's still not traditional. He was just saving, saying a private mass at his house. And eventually he met a priest by the name of Father Bulldog. Um, who explained uh, what was happening in the church, you know, uh, in the traditional movement. And this convinced Father Leonard to return to the traditional Latin Mass. And he never looked back. He never said the new Mass again. But he went home and he said he turned the altar around. He got out everything he could as, the, you know, the old uh, um, altar furnishings. And uh, he said the, the traditional Latin Mass. And by this time, he had saved enough money to buy 80 acres of land beside his house. Um, and he started a small chapel on it in, in 1986 called St. Francis of Assisi Chapel. And here, uh, here grew a small but uh, solid traditional Catholic group, maybe about 50 people, and then maybe it grew a lot, uh, little larger. But he had always dreamed of starting his own monastery. And 
and I remember he telling him telling us that he would he would take a walk down the road and and he would see this eighty acres of land. This is before he bought it, and it kind of goes up on a hill, and it, it struck him. It just struck him like lightning that on that mountain I'm going to build a monastery. That'd be a perfect spot. And so after he bought that land, uh, he started a monastery. Um, and and this is about 18, uh, 1986, uh, uh, roughly. And it, it was hard starting, but he started uh, near that uh, little chapel he originally uh, bought, and, and some vocations came. Uh, you know, he would get three vocations, they would all leave. And then he would get three more, they would all left, and he was getting discouraged. Uh, and then finally, one one came and stayed, and that encouraged him to keep going. Um, and uh, more came and stayed, uh, novices, and donations grew. And he was able to, to eventually build the monastery, and he built, really, it was a big, a big facility uh, on the property. Hmm. And so things, uh, he eventually built uh, uh, the monastery and the Abbey Church. Uh, and that was done in 1994. Uh, then he was blessed as abbot in 1994 by Bishop McKenna, and I believe Bishop Dolan was there for that ceremony as well. And this is, you know, at about the time I came, I entered in 1998, and so everything was built at this time. Uh, there were were about five monks, uh, five, uh, four of them priests, uh, and one of them was a deacon. And so I was there 12 years. Uh, at the height, uh, our numbers were about 11 monks, six of whom were priests, including myself, and uh, five brothers, uh, some uh, novices studying for the priesthood. So monastic life, uh, you know, I loved it. Uh, it was overall very good. It was a strict way of life in many ways. It was a hard life. Uh, many came and went, and that's just a normal thing in religious life, uh, in a monastery or in a seminary. Many come and try, but they don't make it. Uh, it would come for a few months or six months even and, and then leave. So that was normal. So that type of life is not for everyone, uh, but it's a beautiful life. Uh, and overall, throughout my, my 12 years, I was very happy there, happy with the life as a cloistered monk. And I tell people this, is that I was never bored a day in my life, uh, which I find I was bored before that, you know, bored with the world. But I was never bored with religious life and never bored with all the study that was a, you know, was able to, to, to do there, you know, I enjoyed reading and we had a library of 22,000 books. Hmm. So it was a, a wonderful place. I'd spend many, many hours. Uh, yeah. Ne never a shortage of anything to read. Uh, no, so there was Father, always what, something going on. Right. Father, what year then were you ordained? I was ordained in 2006 uh, by Bishop Robert McKenna, a Dominican uh, in Connecticut yeah. there. And um, was all of your formation at the the uh, abbey, or did were you sent out Correct. for some class no, as no, well? No, every you know the proper place for the education of the young monk is really his own monastery, because you're you, you need that monastic atmosphere. Um, you need to live that monastic life. If you sent out just to a secular or even a secular seminary, you won't for that whole formative years as a novice and a young monk. You would not be living the rule. Uh, so mm -hmm. you really can't be sent out. The only place you could get, be sent out is really another monastery. And that's what happened in the old days, pre-Vatican II, is that certain monasteries, 
operated as seminaries for the congregation and or a, a group of monasteries. Like Abbot Leonard, uh, Father Leonard at the time uh, went to uh, seminary in uh, Kansas, Atchison, Kansas, uh, St. Benedict's Abbey, uh, which was a common place to go uh, as a Benedictine to study. It was another monastery, so you're around other Benedictines. So, but for us, uh, it was just at the monastery. So, um, now, Father, I'm sure our listeners, I know we don't want to get into a lot of detail about this, but I, I think listeners would be interested to know a little bit about what ultimately happened at Christ the King Abbey mm-hmm. and how you you come to now be a parish priest right. in, in London, right. Ontario, and what 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 happened with the Abbey ultimately. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to get into many uh, details or name many names, but I'll just say just uh, uh, in general, general terms, is that the background of what happened was, you know, one thing that we emphasized at the monastery, and, and as I said, we had a newsletter that we published uh, three times three times a year, and we sent out 25,000 of them. It was called the Speculum, which means mirror in Latin is one of the things we emphasized was the spiritual life, and that was good. Uh, and this was something that was missing in the Catholic world, and people were hungry for it. Uh, but we, one thing that we didn't do as a monastery is take a theological position in regard to the Novus Ordo, the Vatican II claimants to the papal throne, the whole Pope issue, really, all the controversial issues regarding the heresies of Vatican II, the New Mass, whatever. We were traditional, uh, but we didn't have a clear position on these things. And as individual monks, we were allowed to hold various opinions on these things, but we didn't discuss them because that was just uh, argumentative and divisive. You know, so unfortunately, um, you know, unfortunately, that caused problems down the road. And I think in, in general, many people like the fact that we didn't engage in controversy and argument. Uh, and it's definitely a weary thing in the traditional world to constantly fight, fight, fight. On every issue, uh, people are tired of that, and they liked our insistence on the spiritual life. However, I think not having a clear position and the monks not being of one mind on these subjects eventually doomed the monastery. And I think as long as Father Abbott was alive and alert uh, before his stroke, uh, before the last few months, he could keep things moving and together, since he was a strong leader. Uh, he was a strong leader, and but even as a young monk, I. I I began to fear what would happen, what's going to happen after Father Abbott dies. And I I was I had that feeling that uh something's gonna you know, it's not gonna last forever. I'm not going to die here, basically. As a monk you vowed uh stability in the monastery till death, and I had this conviction in me that my time is running out, that for some reason I just don't see it lasting forever. Um you know, I, I thought everyone was more or less strong in their adherence to tradition, uh, but everyone had their own concept of what that meant. And I, uh, by that, I mean, I think that not everyone was a set of a contest, but I thought we all rejected Vatican II and the whole Novus Ordo Conciliar Church. Like for me, the Conciliar Church is simply another religion. It's it's not something to look to, to make a deal with. It's It's... It's just like as if the Baptists or the Lutherans invaded the Vatican and took it over. You don't make a deal with that. 
as, as uh, Bishop Sanborn said in one of his sermons, is the only dialogue I would have with a modernist is to pack your bags. Um, so, but over, over, but over the time, you know, through hints throughout the years, I began to fear that we're we're not all in agreement on these topics, and that I understood that not everyone understood the theological issues, but but there would be hints that some of the monks recognized. Uh, you know, Pope John Paul II or Pope Benedict or at the new mass being probably valid and, and all these things that there was not a clear line. And, and eventually my fears came true. I remember right before the monastery fell apart, apart, this was in 2010, we had a visit from the local quote-unquote Bishop of Birmingham. And he came for a visit and he would do this once in a while. Every few years, maybe he would try to go fishing and tried to get us to join him. But this time, he came with his... This was the new bishop of Birmingham. Uh, bishop Baker, I believe his name was. And he came with his predecessor, Bishop Foley. And he also came with an old Monsignor from Rome. Uh, and these three came for the purpose of getting us to... As a monastery, to join Rome, to join them. And, and Father Abbott had some of us meet these men in the parlor. And he asked me, he, he specifically asked me to join because he wanted me to be part in this discussion, because he knew I was strong on these issues. Uh, you know, we were generally kind to the local bishop, uh, but we were also firm in our resistance to join them. We weren't interested, but we were still kind to them. Uh, at this particular meeting, I, I happened to be the most vocal uh, against their suggestions, uh, but it was, it was really impossible to, to really talk to them, because any reference to traditional Catholic uh, theological terms, they had no idea uh, what you were talking about or how to answer. They they didn't understand theology very well. You could get this uh, in the first few minutes. But there was one line which they repeated over and over. It was, where Peter is, there is the church. And they, <clears throat> excuse me, they had said that they, they wanted the, the monastery to remain traditional, to keep the traditional mass, and nothing would change. And I had replied that we will never join them unless they rejected Vatican II, they, they rejected the new mass and the new sacraments, etc. So I know that they particularly didn't like me. In fact, that, that Monsignor, and they, you know, that's what the what they do. They they bring in someone who is kind of an expert uh, compromiser, you know, to make a deal. But when I left the room briefly, this Monsignor apparently said, "I don't think Father Bernard likes me." Uh, and it wasn't that I didn't like him. I thought he was actually uh, an interesting man. Uh, he said uh, he he says the traditional mass every day, and he's against all the abuses. And I replied to them that we're not against the abuses. We're against the doctrines of Vatican II. It's not just because of the clown mass we're objecting to or the balloon mass. It's because of the doctrines. But I think eventually, you know, they, they left, and but they succeeded in planting the seeds I think of of deception. They 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 obviously did in in some of the hearts of some of the monks that were listening. Uh, I didn't think at the time that they they got anywhere, but unfortunately I I must have been wrong because it came out later that uh, you know a deal was being made. Uh, but in in, 19, in 2010, uh, about the summertime, I, I think it was August actually, Father Leonard uh, had a stroke. 
and he was in the hospital for for a couple months. He was 87 years old at this time. Up to this time, he was actually very active. Uh, it was amazing to see him uh, just work and work and work. He was strong, but after the stroke, he he never fully recovered. And December of 2010, uh, when one of the priests uh, unexpectedly unexpectedly left the monastery, uh, really uh, and abandoned uh, his monastic life as well. Um, it was just a few weeks later that um, I had to leave myself. And the way that happened was uh, a few weeks after this this priest left. Uh, it was kind of it was a devastating thing for the whole community. But after that happened, uh, the senior priest. Uh, in the community, the prior, he called a community meeting and he announced that uh, they are no longer tolerating any set of a contest in the community and that they had already made contact with the Novus Ordo authorities uh, to come to some kind of agreement or union. So obviously that was the end for me. And they already had papers signed, uh, uh, printed up for me to sign, to leave, um, to renounce my voting rights and all that stuff. Um, and also, there was another brother that uh, left, and there was uh, two sisters that left as well. Um, and they scattered. They went to, to different states. But so I did not have any legal standing or any authority at the time. So I really couldn't have uh, fought it. And I didn't want to be in a situation where it's just a losing battle. I'm not going to live in that situation the rest of my life where we don't agree. I can't. Uh, so I, I had to leave. But I was at peace about it. This is something that it was stressful leading up to this point. But at that point, I had a profound peace in my soul because I knew that I wasn't leaving. I was forced to leave, uh, that I could not in conscience, conscience uh, go along with the Novus Ordo or accept, uh, you know, Benedict the 16th. So I had no choice. But I remember at this time, I before I was actually asked to leave, I was going through a hard time, I was just crushed in the thought, uh, what would I do if I left the monastery? How, you know, what would happen to me? Because um, I vowed to stay there to life. I, I had intended that. But I remember praying hard and, and eventually all that stress and all that darkness just absolutely lifted up off me. And I had this profound peace and a, a strength about it. That, you know, I used to, to tell others about divine providence and trust in divine providence. And now here I was at a point where, hey, I have to actually practice what I preach. Mm -hmm. And those truths of divine providence that uh, came back flooding into me and, and they gave me much peace and strength at the time. Uh, it's something, you know, eventually in a future talk, I really want to talk about divine providence. Um, but anyways, at this time, I... I like I said, uh, I'm not going to say anything uncharitable about who, who left the monastery or who were instrumental in uh, bringing uh, the monastery back to the Novus Ordo Church. They, they were my brothers at one time, and uh, I knew them well. And I don't think they were evil men. They're just simply mistaken. They're deceived. And I, I just pray for them. I, I, I wish them the best, and I hope, you know, I just hope the best for them. I, um, I think it was more of a case of being ignorant of the theological issues at stake uh, and the solid theological reasons why we, we have to do have nothing to do with the Novus Ordo Church. And so we're not really taught these things. And they did, it, I personally studied them, and I was clear in my own mind that that was not the case with the others. And it's really all I want to say about them. 
Uh, It's unfortunate. Right. Go ahead. But ultimately, as I understand it, the Christ the King Monastery is completely closed uh, since that time, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, there was only uh, two uh, priests left after after I left. There was only two. Uh, they eventually split. One of those priests uh, went back to the tra- tradition. He repented uh, that he, he realized he made a big mistake. And, uh, you know, thanks be to God that he returned to tradition and is saying the traditional Latin Mass. Uh, but one of the other priests, uh, you know, continued in pursuing to hand over the monastery to a, I think, a Novus Ordo religious uh congregation from the Philippines, I believe. So it is being uh, used uh, as a religious institution still, but unfortunately uh, not traditional, not fully traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's unfortunate well, how things turned out, but you know we have to believe it's part of divine providence and that nothing in this world lasts forever except the church, really. Not No particular religious house, even St. Benedict's own monastery, uh, that he founded in the 6th century, you know, was destroyed a few times throughout history. So it happens. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think Christ the King Abbey, while it lasted it was about 20 years, 25 years, that it really helps many people spiritually. I think thousands, we've touched thousands during its existence. And if we were able to bring one soul to heaven, one person closer to God, uh, I, I, and give God some pleasure during those years, I, then I think it, it was worth it. But unfortunately, it turned out the way it did. Yeah, well, I, I definitely agree with that, Father. I know that's something we've sometimes talked about is in the context of Restoration Radio, that if we helped even one person through our radio show, right. then it's, it's right. worth the effort. But uh, right. <clears throat> fortunately, uh, Providence has now brought you to us, and as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, you're, you, you have your own uh, dreams and plans of uh, starting a new a Benedictine right. monastery now up here in Canada, right? And right. Uh, uh, and yeah. as I understand, it, you already have one potential uh, uh, novice. Right. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, um, yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Just introduce that uh, thing that that after I left the monastery, actually, a friend from Louisiana, a Franciscan priest friend, Father Francis Miller, he he came up to pick me up. Uh, and, and I lived with him for uh, about two months in Lafayette, uh, Louisiana. And then I, I placed myself under Bishop Mark Piverunis in Omaha, who I always considered my bishop in one way because he was, uh, growing up, he confirmed me uh, in, uh, in London, Ontario. And uh, Bishop Piverunis uh, wanted me to take some time off and, you know, to review my studies and just, uh, you know, it was a stressful time. So he wanted me to take some time off and he stationed me as a pre with, a with an older priest in Colorado for two and a half years, uh, Father Luis, uh, Corrado. And, uh, we became good, good friends. Uh, it was, it was, you know, at the time I went to Bishop Pivarunas and I thought he was going to send me to Detroit, Michigan, uh, for a year to live with Father Radecki. And, uh, he called me in and, the day before I thought I would be traveling to Michigan, he said, you know, there's a priest in Colorado uh, that asked, uh, you know, that he have a companion priest. And uh, I think Colorado would be a better place for you. It's, it's peaceful out there in the country, uh, uh, you know, more contemplative. And it was kind of a blow for me, uh, to be honest. Uh, I would was hoping to go back closer to my family in Ontario. And instead, I was heading, heading 
a thousand miles the opposite direction. And so at first it struck me, it hit me and, you know, I literally, I, I cried. It was a hard, another blow, you know, but it was so providential. And I, I, I felt that, again, this is providence and I agreed to it immediately. Uh, and so I lived there for two and a half years, but uh, I, I had tried to start a monastery out there. I met a lot of good friends and uh, benefactors and, but it wasn't working for me to be stationed there permanently. And so the bishop uh, sent me back to Canada here to be stationed as pastor of Our Lady of Victory Catholic Church in London, Ontario, which, as I, as I said, is my home parish as a teenager. So, you know, I, I am working with the CMRI priests, and I work under Bishop Piverunis, uh, who is an excellent and uh, zealous bishop. Uh, he has about 30 priests under him, and uh, we take care about take care of about 50 chapels in the, the U.S. So we're, we're busy, we're traveling a lot, but I'm, I'm happy to be back home in London, Ontario, and I, I do hope to start my own monastery. And a little bit more about Father Abbott I wanted to, talk, to say is that um, I, I feel that he's very influential in my life. Uh, there's a large part of him in me, and, uh, you know, he was a great man. Uh, as an abbot, uh, he was a true father to us. He... Uh, he loved us really as his own sons, his spiritual sons. And he wasn't perfect and he made some mistakes. But looking back, you know, he should have done some things differently, but he did what he thought was best. Uh, you know, I think we all could have done things better. You know, if I had been a saint, perhaps it would never have fallen. Uh, there's so many what ifs, uh, mm-hmm. but that's in the past. And I think Father Abbott did accomplish a lot. And I, I feel that I want to carry on his work. Um, but Father Abbott could only work with what he had at the time and the, and the characters that God sent him for vocations. Um, and I want to say this about Father Abbott, just is that at times he was hard to live with. And, and uh, you know, I tell people that, you know, sometimes you wanted to strangle him. He was so hard sometimes to live with, but, but you loved him at the same time. And I, I love him very much as my father, my spiritual father, and I miss him very much. Uh, he was really a true father to me, and he put up with Many of my faults as a young monk, you know, I definitely had a temper. I would get mad and argue a lot and, and things like that. But he was patient with me. You know, he would look me straight in the eye and not, not back down. And uh, he was tough. And, but he helped me overcome my faults and character flaws. And, you know, the type of person that would never give up on you. You know, he could be tough mm-hmm. and stubborn, but uh, he was a good father at the same time. But I remember him saying to me as a novice, I remember him saying to me as a novice that, and he would repeat this every year. He said, that one day you're going to be, you will teach theology. One day you'll train priests. And he would say that to me, even as a novice, I was just 19 years old. He would say, one day you're going to train priests. And he would say that to me almost every year. And unfortunately, I, I didn't get the chance at the monastery. But the day I left the monastery, uh, Father Abbott was still alive. He, he was unable to speak. But I went to his room. And he was laying down. He, he wasn't really able to communicate well. He, he could understand what you were saying, but he wasn't able to talk well in return or say much in return. But I told him that I was leaving and that I was asked to leave and that I had to. And I remember him saying the only word he could say, why, why, why do you have to leave? Uh, and he, he was very anxious. He wanted to get up. You know, he wanted to get out of bed. But, but I, I, I told him, just relax. Don't worry. You know, I, I'm not going to let your work die. You know, I have to leave, but I won't let your work die. I'm a monk for life. And it's it's hard for me to talk about this, the last meeting with him, because Father Abbott was suffering so much at the time. Physically, he was in a lot of pain. And apparently he did have uh, prostate cancer 
Uh, but we didn't know this at the time, but it moved to some of his bones. And that's why he was suffering so much. And we didn't realize this, but he refused to take any painkillers or anything. Um, so then, then he was suffering mentally because he was seeing all his work fall apart around him, you know, the community breaking apart and things like that. So he suffered a lot. I think he had his purgatory uh, on, um, uh, and I say this, and I wanted to say this too, uh, for the record here is, you know, the senior priest who was responsible for, you know, the deal with the diocese, he put out the statement that Father Abbott gave his permission for this deal. Um, I find this almost impossible to believe. Uh, you know, if, because if it was before I left, I had no hint from Father Abbott that he ever wanted to, to join the diocese. And if it was after I left, or about that time, I don't, put, I don't put much value in that permission because Father Abbott was suffering a great deal. He was in a lot of stress. And he was probably on some medication, I believe. So even if he had given permission, it wasn't the real Father Abbott. Uh, you know, at that point, he probably would have said anything. You know, he was just under so much stress. Um, you know, I lived with Father Leonard for 12 years. I, I knew him very well. And although he wasn't clear on all the theological issues in regard to our position as traditional Catholics, he never gave the impression that he ever wanted to reunite with, with the new church, ever. And I uh, practically every week or every other week, he would say something to warn us about the new church. Uh, and I wanted to say this for the record because, you know, I lived with him for 12 years. But I remember almost every week that, that told us that when he was gone, that when he is gone, they would try to get you to join them. You know, he would say to us things like this, you know, I won't even be cold in the ground and you'll have visitors at the door trying to make a deal. And he would say stuff like this. Honey had never flowed so sweet as those sweet talkers when they come to you on that day and you have to be lions against them. And don't be fooled. He would say this over and over to us. I remember hearing this uh, at least once a month, you know, and so I have no doubt that as long as uh, Father Abbott was alive, there would be no deals. And and many times Father Abbott would say to me personally, and I, I don't know if you've ever said this to anyone else, but I, he would say to me that, you know, he would admit that he was a set of a contest. He would say, of course, there's no pope. You know, we couldn't be doing what we're doing here if there was a true pope. Um, but on the other hand, he didn't think it was a position important enough to make public. Uh, but I, I know that was in his heart. So I didn't quite agree with him. I think it was an important issue to to make uh, public. Um but anyways, uh, uh, you know, it, it, I, I tried to tell Father Abbott, you know, something that I learned from Bishop Sanborn, Father Sanborn, in that, that uh, cassette tape that I told you that was very influential in my life, is that it, it's a dogma of our faith that we must be subject to the Roman pontiff to save our souls. So it is a burning issue whether or not these Vatican II claimants are true popes or not. It's not a side issue. And although it may take certain individuals more time to resolve these problems, it's important to eventually solve that issue in the practical order. And so to get back to um, me starting, you know, me desiring to start a monastery is that when, when, I left, when I left, I'm still a monk. And I, I consider myself a Benedictine monk for life. I'm in final vows, solemn vows, and I, I intend on starting my own monastery as soon as I can and in order to live my own vocation but in order to live my own vocation I think I have to share this vocation 
You know, and I, I, need, I want to share this vocation to keep it alive for other young men who wish to be traditional Benedictine monks. And, and there's not many options out there, especially as set of a contest. There's not contemplative monasteries. Um, if there are, there you could count them on one hand, definitely or on a few fingers. So, well, well, it's clear what the theological position of your monastery will be, Father. Right. Exactly. Um, exactly. I, I'm wondering is. I, I'm wondering, is there a special apostolate that you have in mind for it uh, beyond just um, obviously the general apostolate of yeah. a contemplative monk? Yeah. Well, like you said, yeah, I, I, I will have a solid theological position. I think the same as uh, uh, the CMRI position, which I've held since uh, teenager, basically a set of a contest position. Um but I think the two points in the monastery that I'm going to do totally different is I'm going to have a solid theological position, a very clear one that everyone has to accept. And the second is that I will encourage theological study, uh, especially as the foundation of the spiritual life. Uh, and as I, I said, I, I do hope to found this monastery somewhere near my, my church here in London, Ontario, if I can eventually raise enough money to get some land and as you said, that there is there will there is a young man from my parish here who will be joining me in January as a monk. Uh, he'll be studying for the Holy Priesthood as well. And I, I really only have one room for for a novice, but ho- so hopefully I'll be able to acquire a, a larger facility or house uh, in the near future so I can expand. But uh, yeah, it's I my main apostolate of what I want to do at the monastery is to promote knowledge of the spiritual life of the soul, uh, especially the prayer of contemplation, according to the teaching of the, the great masters of the spiritual life. And I want to spread this knowledge, at least have it out there. It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, my monks would be any holier than anyone else. But I, I think I think we need this in the traditional movement. I, I remember walking uh, to the Abbey's library and seeing all the books on the spiritual life and thinking, you know, wow, so much so much of this knowledge is being forgotten or lost, and, and, and all the work of these great holy men who spent their whole lives, their blood, sweat, and tears, preaching and teaching and writing about the spiritual life, about ascetical and mystical theology, much of it's forgotten by most Catholics, and I think, or at least not talked about, even in, traditional, in the traditional Catholic world. Uh, I think traditional Catholics are excellent on dealing with the controversial subjects uh, of theology that the the liturgy, the Holy Mass, Gregorian chant, ecclesiastical history, but there seems to be a hole in regards to the interior life. So that's really one I, I want to keep alive, and I want this knowledge of the interior life kept alive. It's a 2,000 years of tradition. It's really the heart of our faith, and so that's right. my goal. Um, well, uh, unfortunately, Father, from my observation, I think among traditional Catholic circles, Spirituality is almost like a bad word, and I think it's because of the way that Novus Ordo has perverted the whole idea of the inner life and spirituality, so that people have a wrong understanding of what spirituality is, and, um, you know, it's thought of this kind of Mm -hmm. wishy-washy, lovey-dovey kind of Right. thing, right. Uh, you know, to, to be said with a, a list by <laughs> uh, right, you right. Know, spirituality, people <laughs> will right. often uh, okay. make fun of it. So I, I think this is a perfect spot in our show 
to segue into talking about what the mm-hmm. show starting in January is going to be of, of the spiritual okay. life. And so if I could ask you, Father, to start that, what is the, the spiritual life? Could you give us a true Catholic definition of what that is? Okay. Uh, you know, it's not the easiest thing to define in a short, compact sentence or two. It's like uh, it's like saying, what's Christianity? What's Catholicism? You know, hundreds of books were written about the spiritual life. And it, it, rarely do they define it in a sentence. So it can be done, but instead of doing that, let me just um, briefly explain it in broad outline. Uh, and again, books have been written on this, and we'll talk you know, hours and hours about the spiritual life. So trying to compress it in, in, a, in, a, in a most basic way is difficult. But let me say this, that all throughout the Gospels, the whole New Testament, there's references to the spiritual life in one way or another, you know, on every page. And in various ways, our Lord told us that he came to give us a mysterious gift, a new life, something that will spring up, as he says, into life everlasting. You know, our Lord talked about being born again of water and the Holy Ghost. He told the woman at the well, if thou didst know the gift of God and who he is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou perhaps wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. And Jesus asked, answered and said to her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but he that shall drink of the water that I will give him shall not thirst forever. But the water that I will give him shall become in him a fountain of water, springing up into life everlasting. What is that water? You know, in another place he says, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And another place our Lord said, I am come that they may have life and may have it more abundantly. So what is this? What is this living water? What is this life that he wanted us to have abundantly? It wasn't just natural life. It's not just greater physical health. It's a supernatural life. And the supernatural life that our Lord came to give us, you know, you can, you can consider it from two different aspects. You can consider it in its very nature or being. And secondly, in its activity. And in the first sense, the spiritual life is that supernatural life that is infused into our souls at baptism. This is sanctifying grace. And one of my favorite spiritual writers, Father Edward Lean, said that without an adequate understanding of grace, you can't have an adequate understanding of Catholicism. Everything in our religion is so that souls will obtain grace or and grow in grace, and die in this sanctifying grace. So it's really the heart of our faith. Uh, so this is not sissy or namby-pamby, as Father Abba would say. He loved those type of words. Uh, a namby-pamby spirituality. This is, this is dogma. This is our faith. This is our whole religion. is based on the spiritual life. But sanctifying grace is really a, a whole other topic for a future show. But grace is something that is infused into our souls at baptism and, and is nourished by the sacraments and prayer throughout life. But grace affects a profound transformation in the soul. And St. Peter says that grace, by grace, we are made partakers of the divine nature. And I mean, it doesn't mean that we uh, are part of God, but that you participate in God's own life. And that this grace makes us adopted sons of God, literally. That we, what 
our Lord is by nature the Son of God. We are adopted sons. And it's not just a legal adoption, as you get in in uh, uh, Martin Luther. You know, he thought that grace is just, uh, you know, subjective uh, view of God upon you. You're, you're, you're not a holy person. God looks upon you and, and imputes to you Christ's holiness. But you yourself are not changed. Uh, but in the Catholic view, uh, grace is a profound transformation of the soul that uh, it is elevated and supernaturalized with the very life of God, and that you're actually made holy and pleasing to God, and that this grace within us is really everlasting life begun here and now, uh, in embryo, in seed, and that in heaven it blossoms uh, in the beatific vision. And so this grace is a precious, precious life that is given to us, and we have to protect it. Uh, and that this grace, along with this grace, um, the Most Holy Trinity dwells in a soul in grace in a very special way. And we get this, St. Paul says, Know you not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? But if any man violate the temple of God, him God shall destroy, for the temple of God is holy as you are. So, for natural life, the spiritual life that we have, considered uh, in this aspect of, of, of being, is that we are made partakers of the divine nature in a, a finite way, truly made children of God. Uh, but it's, it's not enough that we're just, that we simply be a child. We have to act as a child. And that's why the spiritual life from the aspect of activity is that we have to aim for spiritual perfection. So grace sanctifies us, but we have to be perfect. We have to aim for spiritual perfection, and our Lord is our primary model in this perfection. So these are the two aspects of the spiritual life. One is that you're raised, uh, it's kind of like the, the spiritual organism in a sense that we are uh, new creatures in, in Christ, uh, that we, we live by God's own life in a very mysterious but profound and real way, but then we act that way. So, uh, so, but for the, the spiritual life as considered as perfection, it's simply the life of a Christian, stri striving to conform his life to Christ, to seek intimate union with God. The spiritual life could be called really the cultivation of intimacy with God. Uh, and this is, any spiritual progress is really the perfecting of, uh, of you know, a profound unity of mind and heart with Christ so that we think with him and we, we love with him. We desire what he desires. Uh, St. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So in a nutshell, that's the spiritual life. But in order for the spiritual life to exist in us and flourish in our soul, obstacles to it have to be removed and the enemies to this, this supernatural life has to be fought. And this is, we have to uh, fight sin and uproot vice in our soul. We have to uproot the inordinate attachment to creatures in our soul. Um, we have to fight the enemies of our soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that is why in the spiritual life, we need penance and mortification and self-denial. Uh, so we need that negative aspect. They're, they're necessary aspects of, the, of a healthy spiritual life. We have to avoid what will hinder this life. But the spiritual life primarily is seeking intimate union with God. That's primarily it is, you know, every man 
uh, every person has an interior conversation that they hold with themselves. But a, a spiritual person begins to hold that conversation with God. God becomes the center of their lives and not themselves. And so the perfection of the spiritual life is judged by one's love of God, one's degree of charity. And some of these topics will go in, uh, you know, uh, more clearly uh, in, in a future show. Uh, but it, this is the foundation of the spiritual life. It's not uh, a sissy emotional sentiment. Uh, you know, sentiment. Uh, it, it is based on on solid uh, doctrines of the faith. This is very important. So. The spiritual life is really the science of the saints, uh, the science which um, tells us from revealed principles what constitutes perfection and how we can advance in perfection. Mm. And that's important. And when you mention, Father, um, the, the being rooted in doctrine, that's the thing that really jumps out at me because I think in, in my experience of growing up in the Novus Ordo, churches uh, where some of this negative uh, connotation to spirituality comes from is this uh, phenomenology that's Mm -hmm. uh, big in the Nova Sorta where it isn't rooted in doctrine, it's rooted in what you feel and your experience of God and your feeling close to God, but it sounds like what you're talking about is something quite different. It's not about feelings, it's about... Well, all the Correct. things you mentioned, living a, ca- a Catholic life. Right. No, it it's, uh, really has nothing to do f- with feelings. Feelings, uh, God does not judge you according to your feelings. The feelings mean nothing in, in progress in the spiritual life. And we learn that later on, especially as you advance in the spiritual life. Um, you could feel, you know, you're walking through a desert spiritually, but you may be making progress. So it's it's based on, on solid uh, uh, doctrinal uh, faith, divine faith, uh, believing in God, uh, in the revealed truths uh, of the faith. And I want to say this about spiritual life. I think another important point about the spiritual life, that's really the basis of the whole Catholic doctrine concerning the spiritual life, is that in this supernatural life that we're given by God, that there are degrees of this life, and that this, this grace that we have is the seed of the glory of heaven, as the theologians put it. So he who dies with more grace will have a closer union with God in heaven, a greater heaven, a more happy heaven. And that therefore not everyone in heaven is on the same level. And this is important. That, that, is, that is why we strive for closer and closer union with God here on earth, because we want to be closer to God in heaven for all eternity, uh, to have a greater participation in the very life of the Holy Trinity, uh, you know, if everyone was just equal in heaven, then there goes striving after perfection in this life. Who cares? What matters is simply getting into heaven, sneaking in the door, but everyone else will be, you know, everyone will be equal. But obviously it's not. There's some saints that please God more than others. Um, and so this is not about being above someone else. It's not a competition with other people. Uh, it's a matter of giving the most glory to God for all eternity. God is glorified in his saints. And the more we reflect God, the more holier we are, the more God will be glorified in us. And this is the ultimate reason why we should seek sanctity, not just for our own eternal beatitude, which it's not a bad thing, because that's what God wants us to desire, uh, but because our own holiness is identified with God's will. God wants us to be holy. 
You know, the will of God is your sanctification, St. Paul says. So what is strictly necessary for salvation is to die in the state of grace. Uh, that is without any uh, unforgiven mortal sins on our soul. But that's the bare minimum. The bare minimum is to observe the commandments. But merely observing the commandments is, is, is the bare minimum. It, it will not bring you to great sanctity of life. Uh, for this, you, you have to show greater generosity in following Christ, with following at least some of his counsels. You know, our Lord wants us to strive for perfection of life, for greater holiness of life, for greater detachment from creatures, a greater attachment to God, uh, the imitation of our Lord. Our Lord tells us this, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, so perfection in this life is, of course, relative. Uh, we can't be as infinitely perfect as God, and we're not asked to be, but we want to be as perfect as possible as as adopted children of God. So there are degrees in the spiritual life, and it's very important because tradition has divided the spiritual life into three broad stages, which we could call the purgative, the illuminative, and the unitive ways, or the beginners, the proficient, and the perfect. And not, not that these ways or degrees, or perhaps we could also call them the ages of the spiritual life. They're not watertight compartments. You can't say, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm only a uh, uh, a proficient, but generally an individual soul who is habitually in the state of grace and is trying to live a spiritual life will land predominantly in one of these stages. So there's certain uh, approach, uh, certain rules of the spiritual life uh, that apply to each age, and that is for a future show. Uh, but the, so the importance of the spiritual life and let me get into this, um, and then I, I wanted to talk about the foundation and dogma, the importance of the spiritual life. It's the whole purpose of our existence, ultimately. It's to acquire divine grace, to grow in grace, and to die in grace. Uh, so it, this, the spiritual life is simply the Christian life. It's simply, uh, it, it's not something apart from our ordinary life. Uh, if we separated it uh, from ordinary life is to say that religion is only a thing for Sundays. You know, there's something uh, very soul-satisfying with understanding the spiritual life, because Catholicism is not just rejecting evil. It's not, um, you know, our, our Lord did not come simply as a wise man, uh, teaching us some doctrines, uh, some moral doctrines even. He's God. And he became man, he became incarnate in order to effect a transformation of men, a new race of spiritual men. And he did this, of course, he did bring with him a, a doctrine uh, that is greater than that was ever preached before or ever will be. Uh, but that doctrine doesn't end with just uh, ethics or moral ideas or just ascetical program. The teaching of Christ is the seed of a new life. Uh, that transforms us, elevates us above this world. Um, so we have to keep that in mind, is that the spiritual life, there's a whole undiscovered country of spiritual union with God that most Catholics barely even know about, much less experience. If you look at the lives of St. Teresa of Avila, she, she lived the mysteries of our faith, and, and we're meant to strive for that too. Not all of us can, will attain it, but if we're generous with God, God will not be outdone in generosity. You know, St. Teresa of Avila said that one second of experience in those higher states of prayer amply 
made up for all the sufferings and penances that she went through in her whole life. And so, you know, maybe not everyone will reach those heights of spiritual union with God, but we should strive for them. We should seek closer union with God. And the other thing about the spiritual life and the value of it is that it, it really gives, it's the soul of the apostolate, as that famous book, I'm sure you're, you're aware of, Soul of the Apostolate. It, it gives value to all our, our actions as well. Uh, and it's, it converts nations. Before nations change, as the saying goes, men must change. It all begins with the individual. If, if, if we had more saints, uh, we would convert the world. And, and that's really what it's all about. And, and it, it, it's the deep interior life um, that that produces lasting spiritual fruit in the world. And this is why our Lord said to us, Abide in me, and I in you. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same beareth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. So, absolutely nothing. You know, we can toil, but it will be in vain unless God blesses our work, and unless God gives that increase. Um, You know, by all means, uh, to, uh, we have to strive to save souls, uh, the members of our family, uh, for example, uh, but our own soul comes first. And therefore, we have to live a strong spiritual life ourselves. I think by all means that we have to be on fire with great love for souls. We have to have a burning zeal for their eternal salvation. Uh, but it starts at home. We have to put first things first. And the soul of the apostolate is the interior life of the soul. I, I think I think there's a so important point today that zeal for the sanctivi- sanctification of others begins by zeal for the sanctification of ourselves. You know, unless we abide in Christ, unless we live in him and with him all day long, we're not going to do much for him. We're not going to accomplish uh, any true lasting uh, supernatural good. Because um, our Lord told us this, without him, he can, we can do nothing. You know, let me read, uh, there's um, many decades ago, uh, I think in the 40s, I believe, there was a, a spiritual writer by the name of Father Winfred Herbst. He wrote a lot of spiritual books, but I came across this, this line from him. He says, quote, Heres- the heresy of our age is activism, that feverish agitation which characterizes so many of our well-meaning workers in the vineyard of the Lord, but which leads to the neglect of the interior life. True, fruitful activity has its deepest roots in the close union of the soul with God. And that struck me. I I think there is a danger of activism, thinking that my actions are going to convert the world. It's the grace of God that will convert the world. Yes, we have to do our part. Um, But as the Soli Apostolate, that that, uh, excellent book says, you know, it's my interior life, my union with God, that God will use me as that instrument to convert the world, to change it. You know, if if, if only we had uh, uh, another Pontry Peel or, or another St. John Vianney, look at that. Look at how much good those men did. You know, there's a story of St. John Vianney that there is a possessed woman. Uh, that he was dealing with, and the devil, uh, by the mouth of that woman, one said uh, said one day to Saint John Vianney, "You know, you make me suffer. How 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 you make me suffer? If there were three men like you on earth, my kingdom would be destroyed." 
And that's a strong statement. You know, when you think of it, that's what we need. We need saints today. Uh, and, and the value of the spiritual life, the value of the contemplative life, the value of a life of prayer and penance uh, cannot be overestimated how important this is. Um, I also wanted to uh, also quote one of my favorite spiritual writers as well, Abbot John Chapman. He says this, uh, he said, for one can probably, or rather certainly, do more to convert the world by keeping very close to God and growing in union with him than by any outside work. Though it seems difficult to believe sometimes, it is really best to preach a continual mission to oneself than an occasional one to others. And it is not selfishness for our own soul, for if God wants souls, he first wants mine from me, and until I give it to him entirely without any reserve, I have plenty to do for him without, quote-unquote, saving other souls, unquote. I think that's a strong statement. Mm. Now, Father, you mentioned, though, that uh, theology is the foundation of spiritual life. Right, right. I wonder if we could talk about that, because I think that goes back, again, uh, I don't think people, at least I don't haven't right. don't necessarily associate right. theology with spirituality. Sometimes you think, uh, the tendency is to think that they're separate things, uh, but it sounds like right. we're going to be talking a lot of theology and doctrine on this show. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, the science of the saints is, is founded on solid dogmatic and moral theology. Uh, theology is the basis of the interior life of the soul. You know, in, in the Catholic faith, doctrinal truths lay the foundation for the teachings of morality. We see this in, in moral theology and spirituality, which is ascetical and mystical theology. In other words, that what we believe in our Catholic doctrine has profound practical consequences on everyday life. Uh, because if the Catholic Church asks costly sacrifices of her children, uh, both morally and spiritually, and urges them towards a greater sanctity of life, it is because of what God has done for us and the whole plan of redemption uh, and what we must do to partake in that redemption. And if we only made the effort to acquire a better understanding of the Catholic faith uh, by studying it in a, in a spirit of prayer and love, uh, we will build a solid foundation for a deep spiritual life. There is a quote by Cardinal Manning uh, that I found excellent. I, I go back to all the time. He said this, devotion not based on dogma is questionable devotion. So in other words, our devotion, that's our spiritual life, the devout life, has to be solidly grounded on Catholic dogma, on the, the, the firm rock of correct and orthodox traditional teaching, uh, or it's going to be swept away by, uh, you know, our spirituality can't be vague or shallow or sentimental, you know, just pious fluff, uh, Father Abbott would call it pious piffle, you know, just, just nice poetic words. It's solid doctrine. Uh, there's, a, there's another spiritual writer, I'll quote two others that talk about this, Father uh, Rao Plus, or Plu, he's a Jesuit. He wrote about 40 spiritual books, uh, pre-Vatican II. He wrote a lot of little spiritual books that are just excellent. But he says this, if my spiritual life is not based upon doctrine, uh, it is completely out of balance and lacks a firm foundation. It totters easily, and when fervor cools, the whole spiritual edifice topples because the principles which should have served as its basis do not exist. Unquote. So 
you cannot base your spiritual life on your feelings because your spir- your feelings will go up and down every day. One day you're going to feel great. Another day you're going to feel terrible, but you have to live by faith. And, and sometimes that is you're holding on to God by the, just the fingertips of your will. I believe, I believe these truths, even though I don't feel them, you know, just like sanctifying grace, we don't feel sanctifying grace. We don't, we can't see it, can't taste it, we can't touch it. Uh, we have to believe. We have to live by faith. Um, another uh, spiritual writer, uh, Archbishop Louis Martinez, he wrote in his book on the Holy Ghost, 1957, he said, The influence of dogma in the Christian life puts each thing in its place and thus avoids those pietistic deviations caused by mere personal inclination or lack of instruction. Such deviations, though devout and well-intentioned, hinder the prompt and rich flowering of Christian perfection in souls. It is more important than we sometimes realize to put things in their proper place in the spiritual life, unquote. So, I mean, we could go on and on, but really doctrine is the wellspring of piety and holiness. Uh, and this is what we, you know, and, and we study the faith. Unfortunately, we get into this mode as traditional Catholics of studying the faith only as apologetics. You know, if you have someone reading the Gospels, uh, they're going to read it in order to find proof texts against somebody. Instead of reading it as a spiritual book to con- convert themselves, they try to, to aim at everything. This is a great thing. This is going to be great against the Baptists or the, the Mormons. Instead of saying, no, that's, that's aimed at me. I have to change my life. So it's important to, to get out of that mode of that everything is just apologetics. Uh, and I think people are thirsty for the spiritual life. People come to the point as traditional Catholics that, you know, they're tired of just hearing about the heresies of Vatican II uh, and, and those type of topics. Um, it's important to know those things, and I encourage everyone to, to, to study those things and to be very clear. But if those aren't, that is not the Catholic faith. Those are preliminaries. They, they get you to the, to the place that, okay, now I have the true faith. Now what do I do? You know, I've heard a lot of people say, okay, I, I, I've heard about the heresies of Vatican II. I, I, I know quo primum and those things, but how do, I, how do I love God? How do I pray? How do, be, how do I become a saint? How do I make progress in prayer? How do I grow in the love of God? And, and those are the topics that we, we have to spend time uh, talking about and studying. Hmm. Now, and Father, are there um, are, are there different uh, schools of spirituality or different kinds of spirituality? Uh, there are. You know, I I don't feel quite qualified uh, well, at this point to to go into the various schools and and any depth. But let me say this, that there are various schools of spirituality. You know, a lot of that depends on the author's uh, religious order or even the country that he lives at. There's, there's a, a school, a Carmelite school, a Dominican school, a Franciscan, Ignatian, Carthusian. There's a, there's a German school of spirituality. There's an English school. There's also a French school. There's the school of St. Francis de Sales and the school of St. Alphonsus. But all these writers are just Catholics. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I think they're in all the essentials of the spiritual life. They're they're the same, and all the essentials of the spiritual life are found in any any truly Catholic school. Uh, but 
you know, it's just, it's really a balancing of the elements. Uh, they're blending and, and, and some school gives an importance to one, they emphasize one thing over another. And that's basically what it is. It, it, it's uh, in order to, uh, they're almost like, you know, when St. Paul said that there are various divine gifts, but the same spirit behind them, uh, one is not necessarily better than another. Uh, it's like different flavors of ice cream, but they're all equally ice cream. It's just one soul may prefer or draw benefit from one way more than another. And that's basically what it is. The Holy Ghost takes into account um, the various, uh, you know, temperaments of souls and dispositions and, and circumstances. Um, you know, one school might uh, have a, a different formula of the spiritual life, as it were. Uh, it may emphasize the incarnation or the humanity of Christ, like the French school. Or another school may emphasize the indwelling of the Holy Ghost or interior contemplation and prayer, like the Carmelites. Uh, another may emphasize certain uh, virtues, like uh, poverty, like the Franciscan school. But they're all Catholics. Uh, and, and these schools are not in watertight compartments. Uh, each school is simply Catholic. and Because there's only one Catholic faith. There's only one gospel. There's only one Christ. And, and that's about it. But notice uh, I didn't say a Benedictine school of spirituality, and I wanted to talk about that uh, because I don't think there is one, strictly speaking. And, and many would say that, uh, you know, the Benedictine school would be liturgy or Gregorian chant or those type of things. But really, those things are not the spiritual life as such. Uh, it doesn't have, the Benedictines don't have a monopoly on those things, although they have become famous uh, for. Uh, for the love of the liturgy and Gregorian chant. Uh, <clears throat> but as a, as, as a Benedictine myself, I, I found myself attracted to a great variety of spiritual writers from different schools. <clears throat> Some of my favorite spiritual writers are not Benedictine at all, uh, but many of them are Jesuit or Dominican or Carmelite or Franciscan. Uh, some a Redemptorist, a Holy Ghost Father. Of course, some Benedictines I think are excellent. But so, so I like, you know, there's many different spiritual writers. And uh, although Jesuit spirituality and Benedictine, you know, uh, typical uh, Benedictine tradition uh, are quite different in their, <clears throat> in their approach to prayer, several, excuse me, several of my uh, favorite spiritual writers are Jesuit. And one of them is Father John Grew. Uh, and I wanted to just say this because I found a quote uh, by an abbot, Cuthbert Butler. Uh, he is a, a, an authority in, on Benedictine life, and he wrote a book called Benedictine Monachism. And he's a well-respected authority, but he said this about Father Grew. He was making a list of spiritual writers that Benedictines uh, really should read that could be a benefit to Benedictines. And he wrote this uh, in such appreciations, the personal factor plays a great part. I can only say that for me, of all spiritual writers known to me, Father Grew seems to me to be the one most entirely consonant with St. Benedict's mind, as exposed in these chapters. Breathing his very spirit, interpreting the traditions of the typical Benedictine writers with a quiet but firm insistence that strongly grips the soul. This does not mean that Father Grew knew anything of St. Benedict's rule or the early Benedictines. What it means is only this. As has been said, there is no Benedictine school or system of spirituality. St. Benedict, St. Gregory, and the rest 
merely took the standard teaching current in the church from the 5th to the 12th centuries, and Father Grew has got back to that early teaching and has reinterpreted it with a clearness and a living vigor all his own, unquote. So really, that struck me when I read that, because it made sense that that's why I like, you know, these various spiritual writers, because they're old school. They're, they're the old contemplative school, uh, really what I could call maybe the pre-Reformation spirituality, uh, when it, it was more simpler, and it was more geared towards contemplation. Uh, so I see that uh, if, if I belong to any school, I would say that old contemplative school, the pre-Reformation spirituality that many authors have, and, and it, it has made a reemergence uh, and it's become more popular in the, the, the 20th century with Father Gergo Lagrange and Aaron Taro and Father Aaron Taro and, and many other spiritual writers. But the main point I wanted to bring up is that that's why I, I quote uh, many different authors and I don't just stick to strictly Benedictines. I think as Benedictines, uh, we've always been uh, throughout history somewhat uh, free uh, from controversy, free from having a particular um, school that we always belong to. Um, you know, the, the Dominicans have always you know, have tend to keep with the Dominicans. The, the Jesuits stick with Jesuits, but the Benedictines can say, look back and say, I'm going to take take some of that. I agree with that, uh, but they're not they're not ranged on one side or the other. They they uh, have always chosen for themselves. So uh, so that's what I feel uh, myself. Um, and if I feel that I belong to any school, it's really the the old uh, contemplative school that uh, saw contemplation as the normal, normal term of the spiritual life that everyone should uh, aim for. Well, uh, Father, I think uh, having laid all that foundation, uh, now might be a good time to just briefly talk a little bit about uh, some of the uh, show topics that okay. uh, we're going to cover uh, when we get into the yeah, new we year. We've been talking a long time here. It's been a lot more than I thought. But, um, yeah, I, I there are many different topics I want to talk about. I'm, I'm, I haven't uh, pinned down exactly what uh, what show will be first. or uh, I still need some more time to, to plan that out. But I do want to have some shows on, on some of the books by Father Edward Lean, who was a Holy Ghost father, and he died in 1944. Father Lean was very influential uh, on my own spiritual life, and, and I could talk about that in a future show. Uh, but he has a book on, uh, on the Holy Ghost that I wanted to, to start uh, with perhaps uh, the next show. Uh, and this really talks more about divine grace and, and uh, the source of the spiritual life. And, and, and it lays this doctrinal foundation. And so we can understand what is holiness uh, in God. You know, what makes God holy? We understand that God has the interior life himself, and that's the interior life of the Holy Trinity. And everything is based off that. Everything, the Holy Trinity, is the, the whole reason why we exist is to get back uh, to, to, to participate in, in, in the Holy Trinity, the life of the Holy Trinity in heaven. That is what the beatific vision really is. Uh, so some of those doctrinal foundations, and, and I think we have to understand the marvels of our faith. And so uh, that in a book on the Holy Ghost by Father Lean, we'll talk about. He also has another book called Progress and Mental Prayer. He also has another book called In the Likeness of Christ. And uh, these are the general means to sanctity, and, and I, I probably will do a show on that. 
And then also he has a book called Why the Cross, and, and the place of suffering in the spiritual life is very central, uh, um, and I, I need to explain that. And I, and I also want to explain that some of the spiritual topics that I think that we especially need to understand in these days, you know, I think eventually as traditional Catholics, many of us are going to have a hard time uh, finding access to a, a true priest. Uh, um, so we have to understand the spiritual life in order uh, to practice uh, and grow in the spiritual life without a priest and be able to save our souls, even without the sacraments. And this is why a, a topic like perfect contrition is, is I could do a whole show on that. And I think it's so important today. Uh, many of theologians, I think even St. Alphonsus himself said, if he could preach one sermon, it would be on perfect contrition. That's how important it is uh, for people to understand that. And then also an, another show could be done on spiritual communion. Um, Eventually, I would like to do a show on divine providence, uh, talking about uh, um, that very important truth. And I'll, I'll rely heavily on on some of the famous authors that deal with that topic, Descartes, Said, and and others, uh, and the important topic of sacrament of the present moment. And then eventually, I want to have a whole show on prayer, and perhaps even two shows: one on prayer, and and one on infused contemplation. This is a doctrine. This is a subject that I've spent years on. Uh, it's uh, my favorite topic. It's very dear to me of, of the beginning of infused contemplation. Um, this is something that is being lost. Knowledge of contemplation is being lost and that it's really a common mystic prayer that many devout souls, even lay people, are, are at this stage that contemplation is beginning. And St. John of the Cross gives three signs uh, for the spiritual director to, to, to recognize and for the soul to recognize that they are in, they're moving to a profounder kind of prayer, but they need to know that transition. It's a very painful time. It's called the dark night of the senses, um, and it's very important, and I'll, that's a whole show that to go into, and uh, I'll probably uh, talk about quietism, what is that, and, and maybe a, a show to cap off the series, maybe on spiritual childhood or something like that, but those are the topics that uh, I've been thinking of. All right. Well, thank you, Father, and it's it's yeah. going to be a an excellent series, I think, and I look forward to discussing these topics and many others uh, starting uh, in the new year. And again, Thank just you. remind, <clears throat> uh, just remind listeners, uh, the uh, this series uh, today is just the introduction to uh, the spiritual life shown, or an introduction to uh, uh, our instructor in that show, Father Bernard Utley, OSB. Uh, the show itself will be. The third Sunday of every month, starting January the 19th, 2014, and will be uh, starting at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Central. But of course, as with all uh, shows on the Restoration Radio Network, will be available uh, for for download either directly from Blog Talk Radio or on iTunes. Um, Nicholas, could I add something? Yes. Just, just, a, just a couple, just a minute. I know we went on a long time here, but I wanted to add one more thing. Uh, my parting advice on the spiritual life, a general advice that I, I, I always give is that I think one of the most important exercises of this spiritual life is daily spiritual reading. And it's my conviction that we cannot exaggerate, we can hardly exaggerate the importance of daily spiritual reading. I, uh, without spiritual reading, our prayer life will suffer, our moral life will suffer, our, and I think 
our even chance of salvation will diminish. I've, I've seen priests and religious lose their vocation because they failed to be faithful to their daily spiritual reading. It, it's nourishment. It's food for the soul. Um, and it's not just my opinion on this. St. Alphonsus says this. Uh, he was a great doctor of the church. He said, without good books and spiritual reading, it will be morally impossible to save our souls. So, so that's my parting advice, is that we need more spiritual reading. That's so important. Right. Thank you for that, Father. And we'll be able, well, you've already mentioned some books that we'll be discussing, so we'll be able to give our listeners some uh, recommendations on what works to spend their daily uh, spiritual reading on. Yes. Um, So uh, I I would uh, just, uh, at the end of our show, like to encourage our readers, or our listeners, rather, uh, if they can, to consider making a donation Uh, to Restoration Radio, as I mentioned at the end of the show, but also to uh, Father Bernard and his apostolate. We've uh, heard a bit about some of his plans, and uh, certainly prayers are uh, very welcome that, but also uh, monetary donations are very uh, uh, necessary as well. And for anyone who uh, wishes to learn some more about what's uh, going on with uh, Father, I can give out the address to... Uh, Our Lady Victory mm-hmm. Church is uh, 1715 Dundas Street East, and that's spelled D-U-N-D-A-S, so it's 1715 Dundas Street East, London, Ontario, N5W3E1. And uh, it, Or if you want to uh, contact Father by email, you can uh, email... Uh, us at the True Restoration will forward any correspondence on to Father. Uh, our address is uh, mail at truerestoration.org. So, um, and uh, we would uh, ask that if uh, you found this show to be of value to you and your Catholic faith, that you do consider making even a small donation, even a, a dollar or two, is is very helpful to us. And for those of you who have donated, we I offer a very heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. And if you have any questions or comments in, in general as regards the Restoration Radio, uh, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, just to give out that email address again that I just went over to mail at truerestoration.org. So, uh Thank you uh, to our listeners for listening, and th- thank you again, Father, for uh, for joining us, and um, uh, really looking forward to uh, the beginning of the show. You're welcome. God bless you.